Welcome to Leveling the Playing Field. Today, I have the one and only Dr. Jen Welter. Dr. Welter was the first female coach in the NFL when she was interned during training camp in 2015 with the Arizona Cardinals. And she is sitting in my apartment right now. <laughs> Hi. So good to be here. I'm so excited to have you. We had a little fun at training camp today and um, have been chatting a lot. And you have so many phenomenal stories. It's just lovely. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's been a wild ride, which is, you know, always a good thing. Um, I tend to start these interviews by asking the women, what made you fall in love with sports? You know, when I was a little kid, um, I was just always active. Uh, my mom tells an infamous story of the first time I got a bottle. She never got to pick me up again because I was pretty much like, oh, my gosh, I get to eat and run. Right. Like I was always on the move. I was very curious and I fell in love with a lot of sport. Um, but specifically, when I got a little bit older, you know, being in Vero Beach, Florida, it was like the whole town shut down on a Friday night. Right. And you would watch these guys go out and they were like the real superheroes playing football <laughs> and i was enchanted it was just like i couldn't play but i i always wanted to and it was a sport that i loved for a long time but didn't have a chance to play until i was 22 years old what was the first sport that you played i was a tennis player and i was very good i wanted to you know grow up and be at that time it was Gabriella Sabatini, Steffi Graf. Um, you know, there's still some Monica Sellis, although I didn't like her cause she was loud. Um, <laughs> my favorite was actually Gabriella Sabatini. I just thought she was majestic, right? She was beautiful and powerful and talented. And I remember thinking as a little girl, that, that was everything that a woman should be. And I, was ranked in tennis for a long time. I played um, all across the state, couldn't get me off the courts. And I dreamt that I would be a pro tennis one day until I had a coach who told me because of my size and my build, I would never be strong enough. And it was so sad as a kid because, yeah, I know you're looking my, at me now with crossed my, eyes. But. My mouth just dropped for everyone who, because <laughs> if you, if you meet Jen Welter, or if, I don't know, you see a picture of her, the girl has some guns. So to not be strong enough just sounds ridiculous to me right now. Yeah, but you know, as as a kid, I was probably mm, maybe around 12 years old at that time. And, you know, I had not yet reached my prime height now that I'm out of five foot two. <laughs> and, um, you know, I was, you know, <laughs> who knows how big at that point. And uh, a tiny little scrawny little kid um and so it doesn't seem like it could be possible now sure but you know i tell that story a lot of the times because people don't see it right they look at you or you know they look at me like you did and they think oh my gosh that's not even possible and i say you know but maybe the coach was right i'd never be strong enough to play pro tennis i just grew up to play pro football instead <laughs> I wonder what that coach thinks now. He probably doesn't even know. And, and that's a sad thing, right? Is, you know, uh, and I, I definitely know that that coach played a pivotal role both in, in me deciding, deciding to start lifting weights when I was 
you know, under 14 years old and I was the only little girl there in the weight room. But it also later had an impact on me going on to study sports psychology so that I could work with um, different players and coaches because coaches have such an important role. Um, you know, not only when we look at them on the sidelines of the NFL, but in, in the lives of little kids, you know, as a parent, you hand yourself, your, your kid off to a coach and you say, this is the person who can make you great. And you got to listen to everything that your coach says and your coach knows the answers and your coach is going to make you better. And when that person, um, is not the person to bring out the best in you and instead maybe picks on you or puts you down, um, it can have lasting implications for the rest of your life. And so it's, it's a very important role. I cherish it. You know, I, I used right. to tell my players in Arizona that as a coach, my job is to make you better. Whether it's on the football field or in life, that's all I'm here for. And if I can do that, any way I can do that, I will do it. And, and they always knew because, you know, if you can reach somebody, that's when you can teach them. And as big and as strong and as gladiator-esque as football players look, you know this, underneath yeah. the pads and the helmet, they're real people with real lives and real feelings. And, you know, you're subject to um, people looking at you and, and studying everything that you do. And, you know, the media looks at every move that you make and tells their own narrative and their own stories. And sometimes it's very unkind. And so if performance for a player changes from one day to the next, imagine that there's no trauma, right? right. There's no physical injury. If performance suffers, it's because something else outside of the game is happening. And so great coaches have to be able to tap into those days. And to those people to help them make the plays on the field, and um, and and I think that that goes a long way back to having the implications of not having great coaches when I was. Wow, my coach—I have told this before—but my running coach basically saved my life. I mean, I was either going to be on his team or I was going to hang out with a bunch of kids that kind of went down a circle of nothing good right mm -hmm. and so he was a bit of a hard ass but that was what i needed clearly so i you know coaching can be so important it and can be and, and and it should be right yeah. i remember um i was in training camp in arizona and you know one of my favorite outside linebackers great guy marcus golden was a rookie at the time he was my rookie pick right and i wouldn't do a rookie pick that was one of my guys that's just not fair I'm not going to pick one of the inside linebackers, but um, I played outside linebacker and I just saw something in Marcus and Marcus had had a little bit of a bad day because any, any linebacker or D line or frankly, any defensive player who has ever come too close to a quarterback knows what a bad day looks like in practice because, you know, he came a little too close to Carson and he got told about it. And there were two things that were wrong with the play. Number one, he came too close to Carden, Carson. But number two, when he avoided him, he didn't avoid him to the upfield shoulder or to the back. He came underneath. Okay. Which means, yeah, there, well, you, you cringe because, yes, there's room for injury if the low line backs up. But it's also a really bad habit. 
Because if you try and do that against somebody like, oh, I don't know, Jameis, he's going to make you look, look really bad when he breaks the pocket. So Marcus had just had a tough day. And I saw it and I, I just talked to him later and I said, Marcus, do you know why we're so tough on you? He said, no, coach. And I said, because you've got it. We all see it. You're going to be great. And the best gift that any coach can ever give you is to make you better. I said, that's why we're hard on you. So did you know that? And he said, coach, I never thought about it that way. And I said, well, when I was a player, I was pretty bad about thinking about it that way too, right? <laughs> I wasn't that smart. I would get mad too or think they just didn't like me or were tough on me or whatever. And I said, what I've realized is as a player, you never really have to worry when a coach is coaching you up on something because that means we see potential, right? That means we think you can be better. It's when you start ignoring them. Yeah, yep. because you've given up. Yep. And Bruce Arians actually walked up on that conversation, kind of told Marcus the same thing on the football wise. And I was going to try and excuse myself because I was like, oh, going to let the big man talk to you. I'm out. And <laughs> Bruce was like, coach, stay. I was like, all right. So football wise, he told him pretty much the same thing I did. And then Bruce said, when I walked up, you had every bit of Marcus's attention. What were you telling him? I said, well, football wise, what you did. I said, but beyond that, that we were coaching him up because we knew he could be better and that the best gift we could give him was to do that and that he never had to worry when we were coaching him up because that meant, you know, we saw potential. The only time he had to worry, and Bruce interrupted me, he said, is when we get quiet because then you're out of here, right? And it, it was just, it was one of those moments. But, you know, a lot of the times that stuff, that power, that ability of coaches it also has to be translated so that you make sure, you know, that a kid with a lot of potential knows that you're hard on them, not because you don't like them. Right. But because you see something. Right. Yeah, that's really good. When you, um, when you had that coach who was like, basically, you're not going to get anywhere with here. What was, what happened next? What did you do next as a, a little peanut? Um, you know, I just, instead of finding reasons to play and ways to play, I found other things to do, right? That thing that I loved the most just became, you know, a have to instead of a want to. Yeah. And I eventually stopped playing altogether. Um, thankfully I, I was still an athlete. I still love sports, but I decided I didn't want to just be by myself anymore. So, um, and that was a really good thing for me. I fell in love with team sports. Because I found a place where I could play a little bigger than myself, yeah. meaning that impact wasn't just defined by my size, but it was now defined by me within the team. And that was where I really found, I think, my best self because I was a great teammate and I was great at, you know, kind of pushing the other people around me and sure. um, both in how I was with them and also just in you know, how I played. Yeah. Um, you know, I wasn't always like the one who'd be telling other people what to do. I just was so feisty and fiery and, and would never stop and would never slow down that, you know, that kind of infects the team around you. What did, um, what were the team sports that you, you gravitated towards? Soccer was my main one. Yeah. You know, I was a sweeper in soccer. 
no one was ever going to get past me in my mind. And oh my God. I was going to take everybody out along the way. <laughs> That's what tried. I was just thinking. <laughs> and um, I wore number 13 because it was bad luck for them. Um, <laughs> yep. I, I was going to let them know. I mean. <laughs> That's staying in, Jerry. <laughs> We've got Jerry here with us, too. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it, it was. It was bad luck for them. They were never going get, to get through me. And. I mean, I was such a tough soccer player that actually the head coach of the football team, mm-hmm. Randy Bethel, used to say, he's like, man, I love that soccer player. She's my favorite one. She takes everybody out. And I literally tried to get Coach Bethel to let me play football because our team was not good. It was yeah. a brand new high school, so our team was not good. And I would watch it. I'd be like, I could do better than that, right? Like, nobody gets <laughs> past me in soccer. I could do this. And so I said, Coach Bethel, you should let me play football. And he's like, Miss Welter, you are a heck of an athlete. And you could probably make this team better. But I'm going to ask you not to play. Boy, oh boy, in my mind, I thought he was going to tell me girls can't play football or something. And I was about to do it. Yeah. Right. If you would have told me that I couldn't do it because girls couldn't do it, I probably would have played back then. And what he said is, you know, I'm a football guy. I've been a football guy my whole life. And we are the worst kind sometimes. And what would happen is this. You would play. You are a heck of an athlete. And you would make some dude look terrible. <laughs> and then either him or one of his buddies would come back and cheap shot you. And then I would kill him and go to jail. <laughs> Miss Welter, please don't play football. <laughs> and it was like, it was such an honest, like, cool answer. Yeah. I couldn't even be mad about it, right? <laughs> I was like, all right, so I didn't play. Keep but, you out of jail by not playing, all right. right. But then later, um, when I did eventually have my first tryout, um, I went to Coach Bethel and I had him help me get ready to play football and he let me train with his football team. And, by the way, he still tells every single dude that ever plays for him, my first player to go pro was the girl that's awesome yeah that's really cool um when you were figuring out where to go next after high school right so you went to college what what were you thinking you wanted to do um how did that process work for you i had no idea (laughs) um the only thing that i i really knew that i wasn't going to do is i actually even though i'm from florida I didn't apply to any Florida schools because I watched everybody that I had grown up with never go anywhere. Right. Like they would be back on like every weekend. And I just thought it was so weird. Right. And I was one of only two, two kids from my graduating class that I know of that went out of state for college. Hmm. And I was just like, I'm, I'm going somewhere. Right. Because Bureau's a, a small town and I, and I wanted to see the world. So I didn't want to fall into having known everybody that I'd known my whole life at all these Florida schools. So I didn't even apply to a Florida school. Um, I really wanted to go to Stanford. Uh, I don't even really know why, except it was beautiful (laughs) and in California and it was a really good school. And the boy I had had a crush on in like sixth grade went there, but (laughs) there was really no guidance for me. I mean, I thought I was this amazing soccer player. I was a captain two years in a row. No one ever beat me. I kind of had this vision of like, 
well, every college in the world should know I exist just because they're psychic and maybe they should come find me. And I, I didn't really know that like that doesn't happen. Right. Especially not for girls. Um, and, and my parents are great, but they, they didn't really understand that process either. So thankfully, um, I didn't get into Stanford, but I had really good grades. I was the, with weighted grades valedictorian and I had the highest SAT scores in my school. So my grades got me to Boston college, um, and BC's and within Boston college, BC's business school, which was one of the top um, 10 business schools in the country for undergrads at the time. I'm just rolling my eyes because BC Law did not admit me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Stanford didn't admit me and um, I got to go back and speak at Stanford just a few weeks ago. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and so it was like, okay, so maybe life comes back full circle. You didn't want That's me awesome. and now I'm speaking <laughs> to Cheryl Sandberg's Lean In and all the women there and I'm the one they're looking to for motivation. So, you know, <laughs> it's uh it's funny how life does that. Yeah. But um how did you find your time in Boston? Did you um like being around there? Was there anything you missed about Florida? I missed the warmth in the people. <laughs> I was so surprised, you know, here's this sweet little innocent girl from small town in Vero Beach, Florida. And I get up north and I'm like, hey, how y'all doing? What's up? Like, what's going on? And they would just kind of look at you like, we don't do that up here. Right? <laughs> like, they just kind of stranger danger. Right. And and they were all very well dressed too. like, you know, there was not the beachwear mentality. Like we would go everywhere right. in like athletic shorts and T-shirts and they looked like they were going somewhere straight out of a j crew catalog and i was intimidated and i i didn't feel like i fit in i was a great student um you know i took more classes than i even was supposed to and i i kind of isolated myself and had perfect grades because i was um scared that i was gonna fail like you know all those horror stories you heard about this freshman year and so i was like overly paranoid and then I found rugby and I got the sense knocked out of me or into (laughs) me, I should say, because I quickly found, um, you know, a group of athletes, which is what I'd always been, um, who I really fit in with and I really loved. And all of a sudden it's, it's like that, that group within a group, like, you know, um, you may feel like an outsider or, or like you don't fit in this big, huge college campus but you find this family within it and it changed things for me. Um, I fell in love with the game of rugby. It was football with no pads. And I was like, how did I not know this existed? (laughs) Because I'd never seen it before I'd been there. And I was like, Oh, I'm doing this. You know, when I made the rugby team is I called coach Bethel and I was like, coach Bethel, I'm playing rugby. It's so perfect for you. Um, (laughs) And I ended up playing rugby for all four years at Boston college um, became you know, um, I think I was the MVP my senior year, got recruited to the under 23 national team to try out, um, knocked my tryout out of the park, used to beat up on some of the girls who the coach coached because she was Harvard Radcliffe. So that was a little bit of a rivalry across the river. Uh, Radcliffe used to stomp us because they were a much bigger rugby team than we were. But I was like this little fearless, I don't know assassin and they were all afraid of me and rugby ninja 
Yeah, I was a little ninja. <laughs> I was a little, I was a little tackling ninja, and um, I had some great scrum tricks. So you weren't going to beat me, even though you were like twice my size. And um, unfortunately, uh, the coach at the Radcliffe coach was like at the end of the tryout, and I knew I was the best prop there by far. She's like, Miss Welter, I have girls on my team who are terrified of you. It's like they absolutely are. They have been for years. You're one of the best out there. And I just can't take you. Because at this level, I can teach people to do what you do. And I can't double your size. I'm so sorry. And so I, I thought I was done. I thought this athletic dream that I'd had for my whole life, this player, this, this person who went out and dominated and always had, um, had found the end of the road. And um, I, I did what I thought you're supposed to do as a responsible human, um, pseudo adult at that time. You know, <laughs> we're not really adults then, but I thought I was going to grow up, get a real job. And I took a job as a headhunter, ended up playing linebackers. So yet again, not that different, but, um, <laughs> you know, took the downtown Boston job and the Jersey Street studio apartment and i thought okay this is it i'm growing up right i'm gonna be miss corporate america i'm gonna take the world by storm and i hated every minute of it i was a great headhunter yet again in my life shocking <clears throat> shocking i was very good at hunting heads and <laughs> putting them in jobs thankfully it was not as vicious as it sounded but i remember calling my mom and tell her i'm like mom it's just not right there's something more for me what did I want to back up a, a tiny bit? What did you study when you were at BC? Like, what was your major? Marketing and human resource management. Okay, all right. Yep. I was in the school of business, so I double majored. Okay, and but you can't interrupt the story because it's important. I was gonna say. So then, what did your mom say? No, I just I told my mom that I felt like I was dying a little bit each day because I had lost myself, and there had to be more in the world, and I just I didn't know what I was. And I was playing flag football on weekends and um, teaching aerobics classes before and after work. And I loved those minutes, right? I loved those. I looked forward to those minutes and I hated my nine to five. And from playing flag football, the general manager of the mass mutiny up there called the league I was playing in and said, do you have any girls who are playing flag football who you think could play tackle football? And that was the phone call that changed the rest of my life. When I was living in Boston and in Massachusetts, I had no idea there was a female tackle football team. Yeah. Unfortunately, it still doesn't get much press. Um, so what is that league? Uh, well, it, you know, it's been a lot of different iterations over time. At that point, it was the NWFL, which was the National Women's Football League. And that was quickly squashed. It then became the National Women's Football Association. Then there was also the Women's Professional Football League. And the latest iterations, which both are still in existence, are the IWFL, which is the Independent Women's Football League, and the Women's Football Alliance, which is the WFA. How long were you with the Mutiny? I played my first two seasons with the Mutiny. Um, and I want to back up, though, on that. Because it's kind of an important point for everybody who's ever been scared 
to go after something, right? I had a pattern in my life. I'd been told I was too small to do everything at every defining moment when I thought maybe this is it. This is the breakthrough. This is what I'm supposed to do. This is who I'm meant to be. Somebody told me, you can't do it because you're too small. And now here's this sport that I have loved my entire life, football. It was, you know, the gladiator game I always wanted to be able to play, but girls didn't play. And now I have a tryout. And I remember, at first I was excited. And then I started thinking, what if they tell me I, I can't do it? What if I get turned down again? What if they tell me I'm too small? Could I, could I get past it? Could I get over it? And I say that because for every single person out there who's, you know, wanted to go after something, whether it was a job, right, a tryout, or even asking out, you know, for guys, it's always like, you know, that girl that you had a crush on, you know, we're not supposed to ask them out as girls. So I look at the guys for this one. <laughs> um, you know, that girl you had a crush on, that you always, always liked her, but you were afraid she might say no. Right. right? That fear is, is one of the most dangerous things that there is in this world because it stops so much. And here I was that night before my, my tryout to play football. And I wondered, what if, what if they turned me down? And I say that as a woman who went on to become one of the best women's players in the world, right? 15 plus years, four championships, first and second gold medals with Team USA ever in the history of the sport, and then made history in men's professional football three times. And I could be sitting here, I wouldn't be talking to you because it probably wouldn't be that interesting, <laughs> wondering to this day, what would have happened if I would have just tried out for that team? Yeah. And that was the thing that pushed me over the edge. I knew I could live with being too small. I'd been too small my whole entire life. But what I didn't want was for the rest of my life to wonder what would have happened if I would have just tried out for that football team. And that's a very real thing I take with me every, every day. And I use that to give other people courage to go for that tryout, to ask for that promotion, to go for that job, even ask for that date. Because the answer of not asking is always no. Right. Right? But you could wonder for the rest of your life, what would have just happened if I would have gone after it? So. Yeah, that's a huge lesson for everyone. And I think it's a really important thing to remember as you get older as you try new things as you know you're young and trying to figure out what school to go to or yeah. what major to pick i mean and it was on the heels of lots of rejection yeah right if i would have followed the pattern in my life and just just believed that one no would have defined the rest of my life then i would have been scared right right and, and i might not have done it but you know football has taught me a different philosophy on getting knocked down. It's not a question of if, it's when. It's a part of the game. You're going to get knocked down. And usually right. I was taking people down with me, frankly. Right? I'm taking you down. Like, we're hitting the ground. <laughs> right? It's going to happen. It's a part <laughs> of the game. So you have to focus on getting back up. 
getting knocked down is not the question. It is a part of life that happens to the best of us on the field of football and in every area of life is going to happen. You're going to get knocked down. So when you get back up, how are you going to do it? And what are you going to do about it? And when you get back up, do it with a whole lot of attitude. And, and that's been my philosophy ever since. But football taught me that. Such a great philosophy. When, um, when you have been knocked down, you know, you've played a brutal game. Mm-hmm. Um, how, what have been the things that you do to, to get your, your mind right again? Because see, my mind is always wrong by a lot of people's <laughs> standards. Um, and, and that's something I embrace. I, I, I say I love my brand of crazy. Okay. <laughs> um, having studied psychology while I was playing football was probably the coolest thing I could have done. Because here I am getting my master's degree in sports psychology and I'm learning about all of these things that should impact how maybe competitors viewed me or, you know, creating this persona or all of this. So I would try it out. (laughs) Right. I would try out all these tactics like I wanted to work in sports psychology and I was going to coach people how to be in the mental game. And if I wasn't doing it, then how the heck should I know what works? So I used to try it out and I would be like, okay. So when I look at somebody and, you know, say they get tackled and they stay down on the ground, I think in my mind, I own you, right? Like if I tackle somebody and I get up before her, I'm like, ooh, I got the best of you. I own you. So guess what I was never going to do? I was never going to stay on the ground longer than anybody else. I would pop right back up. I don't care how hard you tackled me, how big you were. I would pop right back up. And guess what? By the way, most of the time. I would lean down to the girl that I just tackled, extend my hand and say, hey, baby, do you need a hand up? Because I'm going to be here all day. (laughs) And let me tell you, oh, my gosh, they all thought I was crazy. And I was very calculated crazy because I couldn't outbig anybody. Right. I couldn't just stand over you and be like, I will own you. I am giant woman. No, (laughs) I couldn't outbig anybody. I had to outlittle them. So I had to outmaneuver them. And that was, you know, both in in my low leverage and dip and rip through, but it was also in my in my attitude. When did you decide that you wanted to go into sports psychology and 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 what was that process like? You know, it wasn't it, it wasn't as much a conscious decision. Um, when I went to play football, um, my corporate job did not like the idea of me playing football. Um, they, uh, pretty much told me they were afraid I would mess up my pretty face. Um, and then I couldn't do it. So I, in my most politically correct, very polite and and very lovely way, told them where they could take their job and how they could get there. Cause I was their number one producer and they were going <laughs> to lose it. Um, and, and I, you know, smiled a lot on my way out the door. Yeah. Not so much, but anyway, I probably made some really good friends that day. Um, And I made the absolute right decision. But now when I left that corporate job, and by the way, it wouldn't have conflicted at all because this was a work by day, play by night scenario. Right. Practices started well after work. It didn't have to be a competition, but um, comfort is a, is a thing. Right. And, and sometimes people feel like because you work for them, they own you in every aspect. And um, so what I did is I, I went back to my roots. I was still, um, teaching aerobics and, and train and um, 
everybody always asked me to personal train them. And I was like, no, I don't do that. Um, I just teach classes. And so all of a sudden I needed to make money. So I, I got certified and started personal training. And I found very quickly that I was really good at bringing out the best in other people and that I could push them in a way in the gym that they wouldn't push themselves. And I enjoyed it, but I didn't want that to be the end, right? It wasn't, I, I wasn't, I couldn't see myself in the gym in that way for the rest of my life. I enjoyed it, but I, I mostly enjoyed the personal relationships and the process of helping people get greater, right? To, to touch that greatness, to achieve things that they hadn't seen before. And I, I knew nothing about sports psychology. I didn't even know it existed. And I, I started just looking at, were there any other jobs in sports that could pay me since I wasn't making any money playing? And I kind of took that mental side and found out that there was this weird thing called sports psychology that nobody was really doing and very few people were talking about because it wasn't even born until the, the 1980s. Right. So it was not a popular field. And I was like, oh, I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. Right. Go ahead. You know, I, I like taking the safe bets never, ever in my life. Right. Um, and I, I found that even in Boston, right, the highest per capita, like college infused town right there's more colleges in the boston area than anywhere else even in that monster area there was not one program in sports psychology huh bu had a coaching i could get a master's in coaching with a a concentration in sports psychology but i didn't want to be a coach i had not one thought of being a coach never something i ever wanted to do so i know funny right so i um I couldn't study it there. Springfield College was like three hours away. Couldn't manage that. And so I found an online program where I could study sports psychology and I enrolled and just started rolling. And I, I fell in love. I, I loved all of the, the different tactics and the different ways to think about it and, and how the psychology impacted players and coach-athlete relationships and even parent um, coach relationships and all of those dynamics it was this concentrated application of psychology that just spoke my language and um you know just really loved it and so now i had made my days even longer so it was work by day play football by night and go to school by very late night um and eventually got my master's degree in sports psychology thought i might be able to do something with that realized very quickly that you can't really do anything with a master's in psychology. They just kind of look at you and they're like, yep. And go get your PhD. Right. So um, I think it was maybe a semester that I was out of school and then just decided I would keep going. Have you um, found that getting that education has changed how you look at other people? in just day-to-day life and then obviously when it comes down the field uh, having a degree in psychology means that you use it every day right it's in it's in everything that you do because it's people right and my my overall phd is um in psychology right so i have a master's in sports psychology and a phd in psychology and it's everything that you do 
So you, it's like you have more background information on every scenario that you're going into, right? Like what is the psychology of consumerism, right? right. Even who is looking at this, who is absorbing it, who is it going to reach? But mostly it, it comes down to the fact that in my mind, everything goes back to people. And there's nothing more important than people, right? How can I teach you if I can't reach you? Right. How can I show you if I don't know you? If I can't speak your language or, or see that you don't absorb information, you know, if I say it, you have to do it or you have to read it. Or, you know, some people need to be screamed at to be motivated, whereas other guys, will just tune you right out and you've lost them forever. Or that oh, um, one player might, uh, for example, have not had a dad. And so his mom raised him. And his mom was the one who taught him everything. And guess what? That player might just be more receptive to a female coach than a male coach. Let's talk about you playing in the women's pro league. And then how much do you get paid? Um, you know, it's a, it's a big dollar amount. Um, the first check I ever got for playing women's professional football. I used to call it pro because we couldn't really afford all those letters. <laughs> right. That's a lot. <laughs> we we're on a budget. So it just better be pro football. And um, the first check I ever got was after the 2004 season. With the Dallas Diamonds, it was my first season with them. We went undefeated, won a Super Bowl, got a ring, and a check for twelve dollars. I'm sorry, what? It was literally a dollar a game. It was profit sharing, but there were no profits. I don't know whatever every is, but it, it wasn't about that, right? Like the the people laugh at the dollar amount, and yet that check was so important to me that, um. I never cashed it. Do you have it framed? Um, I have it. Well, I mean, I brought it with me, actually, to the Arizona Cardinals training camp as a reminder of what I was playing for. Because to me, that was the moment we became professional. It was the first time we ever got paid. And that was in the days before photo deposit. So you couldn't, you know, just cash it you had to go to the bank yeah (laughs) it was one or the other it was cash it or keep it so i kept it and um you know that that's a line to me but i i look at that and i think it's so important to tell that story because you know we talk about a lot of the times in our society the need to uh, be equal right from a wage gap perspective and i can't possibly think of a place in our society where it's more um, disparate then I don't know what's uh what's the average game salary of an NFL player now I know league minimum is what four hundred and forty five thousand dollars or fifty or five hundred okay like so let's say five hundred and they have sixteen games so we could divide that out it's not even close to a dollar no. and I don't really want to get into the percentages if we said <laughs> you know, what, what that difference would be. Sure. You know, so we talk about, I know the national average, I believe is that women get paid 78 cents on a, on every man's dollar. And we got 12 
on a half a million. And oh, by the way, you know, let's just say that I wouldn't have been at the bottom of the barrel since I won four Super Bowls, eight or nine time Pro Bowls and two gold medals. I don't, I don't, I mean, I love JMO, like he's my boy, but I, I don't think he has those stats yet. He's still young. So I can't even imagine what that dollar comparison is. Right? Sure. And, and that's, that's the only reason you bring up those numbers is because it's staggering. Right. right? We talk about 78 cents on a dollar, which obviously is a, is a disparity that we need to be closed. But sports lead our society. Sports set the example because the platform is so visible. Right. And it's so powerful. And, you know, things like salaries are publicly available. So I often say if we want to change the world, we have to change it through sports. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the the great things that happened in the last year was the National Women's Hockey League um, mm-hmm. and, you know, things that moved forward with them. The National Women's Soccer League has mm-hmm. has been making waves. Um, we have a, a USA team for tackle football. Is that correct? Which yeah. I really, you know, doing research on you, that's really the only way that I knew about that, because, again, this is something that isn't really out there a lot. No, it's not. And um, the very first women's world championship, so it's IFAF, um, which is the International Federation for American Football. The first women's national competition was fielded in Stockholm, Sweden in 2010. And the second one was in Vanta, Finland. And the third one was just recently. um, It was this past summer in um, Vancouver, Canada. So I remember the first time I got the call that I had been selected for the U.S. national team. And it was, congratulations, Shen Walter. You're one of the best players in the world. You're going to represent your country. Now here's what we need you to do. You're going to have to take a month off work. And by the way, you'll have to cut us a check for $3,000 to represent your country. What? Yeah. What was the three grand for? Uniforms, travel, housing. There was no budget. There was no, no entity. You know, and I, I look at that and I liken it to, you know, obviously we're going to, if we're going to even try and compare grapes to watermelons, um, it would be, so you have the, the women's U.S. national team would be the, maybe the equivalent of getting selected for the Pro Bowl for the NFL. Can you imagine if you tried to tell those guys they were going to have to pay $3,000 to play in the Pro Bowl? No. No, right. I mean, yeah. It, no. It's, it's not even a fathomable, fathomable conversation to most people because our, our motivation for football was never about money. Right. It was about opening doors. Right? They used to call football the final frontier for women in sports. And I always used to think about it's the final frontier. So when we were playing, we all believed that we were sacrificing to push forward, not just football, but women in general. And so when I got that call, it was never a second thought whether or not I would play and represent my country. The only fears were would I be able to pull it off because I couldn't afford it. We were all we were already all tapped out. Every extra resource went to fielding our regular teams. Every 
family member had already been tapped. Um, you know, all of the local stuff. I mean, we, when we were trying to put teams on the field, we were doing car washes. We were fundraising like high school teams did. Mm. You know, all of those things. And so to even think about being able to come up with $3,000 and to take a month off work. And by the way, the rest of your life and your bills don't stop. Right. It was like this impossible mountain. And yet when we did it, we went and we won a gold medal and we all thought we had changed the world and we came home and nobody even knew we existed. And it, it, it's, it's a very real scenario for so many of the women playing football. And it's still that way today, right? You know, you said you didn't even know we had um, a women's national team until you were doing research on me. And meanwhile, Team USA just won their third gold medal. And those are some of the best women in the world. And when I tell you that those are my sisters in the game and they were amazing, I can tell you that because I had kind of a pivotal decision I had to personally make. You know, my sisters wanted me to come back and play because there were very few of us that had played in the first and the second. There were only, I think, 13 or 14 of us. I think it was right in there that um, played in both 2010 and 13. So you can imagine going into 2017, the numbers were even smaller. And those are, you know, some of the women I love the most in this world. And they all wanted me to play. Um, And uh, on the other hand, I had an offer to coach the first Australian women's national team and to help them field a team. And I chose to go to Australia because they had no resources over there. They were teaching themselves. You know, the coaches are amazing. We had a bunch of the guys help us, but, you know, they were trying to teach themselves via, like, YouTube. And these girls were wanting to play and not getting the resources. And um, and so to go, it was like, you know, you can go and be the head coach of this team with my original offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator from Team USA. Or you can go play and win a gold medal. And in, and I knew going in that it was a very high likelihood that we may not even win a game with Team Australia. But I think of it as those those tough choices become the ones that define you. Because now there's a whole another country that has a foundation that has seen just how good women can be in, in playing football by seeing the gold medal matchup where you know, Team Canada played against Team USA um, for the third consecutive time. And they battled it out. And yet again, Team USA won a gold medal. But, I mean, the women who have played football in this country are the foundation, and, and they should be celebrated for playing the game the right way. Um, and yet it's it's still an uphill battle. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I I didn't know. You know, I knew, and then I knew you were going over to Australia, which... You know, I think you and I have talked about the way that you are able to coach women and how it's so much different than when a man teaches them and the impact that that has on the women that you are coaching. So I could see how you would make that decision to be able to be that person and, you know, spread the 
the love of football. Yeah, I mean, I, I consider myself extremely blessed to have um, had the opportunities I did in the game and, and continue to. And it was the ultimate decision for me was this. In 2010, when I played for Coach Stone and Coach Konecki, who are my defensive coordinator and offensive coordinator slash head coach, and we also had Coach Mack, who unfortunately is no longer with us on this planet, but he was a, a super cool guy. What they made us promise is that we would not only go over to Sweden and win gold medals, but that we would become international ambassadors um, to the game of football. And that that was our responsibility because it was our game and we should be the ones representing it to the world. And it's something that I've always held close to my heart and, um, you know, will continue to do. You know, I'm going over to Mexico September 21st to work with their women's national team and hopefully, uh, well, not even just their national team, with their leagues um, to hopefully help them both in in, um, the field of battle, but the bigger battle, which is, uh, you know, the girls who are playing in Mexico have, you know, not only the problems of, of fielding teams, but, you know, um, there's still even more societal bias over there. A lot of the facilities are men only. Um, so I hope that going there and giving them hope and, and resources and hopefully some media attention as well will will help open some doors for them. And I, I guess I'm just stubborn enough, you know, <laughs> a linebacker, I just hit the hole and, and see what happens. So When... um. When people think about women playing football in America uh, at a pro level, they often think of a certain league where there is very little clothing involved. Mm-hmm. How do we change that? Well, you know, the first thing I want to say is, yeah, I have love for every woman who wants to play football. It's not an easy decision and it's painful and, you know, it, it puts your body through a lot. Um, the other league, my biggest, my biggest concern is in the time that we're, you know, really worried about safety, um, and, and we're doing more and more to, to cover our men and protect our men. Why are we undressing our women? Why are we putting them at more risk? I lost one of my, one of my quarterbacks for team Australia a week before going to international competition because she was playing for um, that other league and they don't even play in real helmets. They play in hockey helmets and she got cracked and she got such a bad concussion that she couldn't even stand up. She face planted like in the shower. I mean, it was it. When I talked to her, I was devastated and um, she's somebody who could have helped our team a lot, but I, I, I even begged her. I said, I don't care if you can never even put a helmet on for me. Don't miss the opportunity to be on the sidelines with your sisters to represent the country. You've worked so hard for this. And her doctor wouldn't even let her travel because the concussion was so bad. So that's the biggest problem I have with that game. Um, It's there are girls who love the game and that's the opportunity that they've found to play it. I would encourage them to take care of themselves. Yeah. Um, 
because you know essentially they're they're being sold on the fact that they're going to become famous and that you know they're they're going to become models or actresses or or something else by by playing in that way and you know and and we support that as a society by putting that on TV and not the alternative right it shouldn't be one or the other um and we shouldn't show women that they can play the same game sort of that they can play a game that's kind of like it as long as they're they're willing to you know show their faces and get massive turf burn i can't even imagine like i was on the ground all the time and that's like my worst fear i have turf burn you know and i I wore full pads so i i can't even imagine how that's okay in any way but um what really has to happen is that you know we demand to see the best out of our women and we want to see them play the game the right way you know as um if you're listening to this and and you maybe have a daughter what what do you want her to see right you know do you want her to see that you can do everything the guys do as long as you're willing to take your clothes off or do you want them to see that you know you have the right to play the same game by the same rules and again i have dear friends who play in the lingerie league and i have dear friends who you know like i said my quarterback who is a heck of an athlete um jane is amazing and i would i would rock with her anyway but that was the opportunity that she had to play, right? So I, I don't hold that against her. Oh, of course not. But I, it's like I, I, I also just, I want more, right? I want more for her. I want her to see that, that she doesn't have to do that. And you shouldn't have to do that in order to get paid or get famous or get on the field. Yeah. I've always been a little disturbed by it uh, just because, a, the safety issues, and B, same thing you're saying. Why are we making women play sports in, in less clothing? You know, what, well, I mean, if we're going to have the women do it, then let's have the guys do it too. I'm going to start the jockstrap football league, putting it out there. Be really entertaining. I don't even want to see. <clears throat> yeah. I'm just thinking of. I don't want to see a roughing the passer or any of that. I'm just thinking of a line hey big men need love too <laughs> that's true right i i can i can imagine like i i love nothing more than d-line when they they get going and be funny oh man they would have so much fun with it i actually think yeah, that the guys they would, probably would own it the most the guys right. would think it was hilarious they would yeah they would for sure the most. for sure but you know i mean and that's just that's how my mind works it's like okay well you know if that's what we want to see from the, the women then Maybe we need the equivalent for the men. And, you know, by the way, and, you know, in the other league for the women, um, there are restrictions versus like if you were to put on some weight, you might get benched and, you know, all that. And I, I don't think we should do that either. You know, in Josh Trap Football League, we're going to play the game. We're just going <laughs> to play it in whatever you play it in. So there you go. <laughs> um, you do a lot of camps uh whether it's like mini training camps or uh flag football camps stuff like that can you talk about how you arrange those and and what you hope uh people take away from them you know it's funny i i've had people who look at the pictures when i was on the sidelines with the cardinals and and they would always say you know why are you looking up well 
other than the fact that I'm five two and I had to look up at everybody. Um, <laughs> I I think I look at the game in a different way. Try to it's a different vantage point. Maybe because I've had to look up my whole life, or maybe because I was oftentimes on the outside looking in. I just have a passion for those people who may love the game, but were told that the game wasn't for them for one reason or another, or they didn't have the opportunities or the access. So in, you know, in response to that, I came up with a program called a day in the life. And that was for women who thought that they would love football, but you know, they'd say, Oh man, you know, I I always try and ask my husband, but he says, honey, don't bother me. I'm watching the game. And I, I will quickly correct them and tell them if he says that to you, that means he doesn't know. Because most guys actually love to be like, oh, honey, I will teach you about football, right? And they think it's a really cool thing if you know and love football. So they'll be like, come here. Yeah, okay? we've all been mansplained before. Right. If, if he's not taking that opportunity. Right. Like, <laughs> usually they love being the stud hero. So if he's telling you don't bother me, he probably is embarrassed because he doesn't know the answer. But in answer to that, I came up with a way for women to learn. And it's, you know. It's called a day in life and you you come in, you get an install just like you would if you were in a day of training camp. You go out. Once you go through the base offense, base defense, we had like three plays on offense, base defense, a couple of stunts. So you get to see what a playbook looks like. You get to see the complexity, right? What shows you that. And then you bring them out on the field and, and teach them to physically do it. What is an install? Okay, sorry. So an install, it, the playbook is giant. In right. the NFL, it's huge. It looks like a Bible. Okay. So we're not going to plop the entire Bible on the table and give it to you because you would just look at it and be like, ah. So what we do is give it to you in installments. Ah. Right. That's the best way I can explain it to you. So you will have a digestible, well, it's still not digestible. It's still pretty thick, even the installs, depending on your coaching <laughs> staff. But we will give you a better chance at being able to digest that information every day. So players will come into camp and they will get a, a packet of plays that they're required to learn every day. And that's, that's what you're going to go through in walkthroughs. That's what you're going to focus on in practice. That's what you're going to, when you watch film and I'm not kidding when I say you watch film of walkthroughs, you really do, but you're going to watch film of your walkthrough. Sometimes it feels like you're watching film of watching film. Um, to make sure Inception level that the players walked through the positions in the correct way to execute the plays that they've just been given. So you first see them on paper and then you put them on play. That is each install is your focus for the day. So in this, when we do like a day of what it's actually like to be a player in the NFL um, and, and what those plays look like, what the playbook looks like. And it was great because we had moms, we had fans, we had women who were always told that it wasn't for them and they got to see how the game fit together. And the goal is not to teach you all of football in a day. Not possible. Okay. Very complex game, but it's to put you on a footing or a foundation that you watch it differently. Right. So if I say, Hey, you know, you've got to read, run or pass. Would you know how to do that? <laughs> no. Okay. No, but see, if I told you, that, hey, defense reads the offensive line to know whether it's a run or a pass. And if I put you through a station where it taught you how to run block and a pass block, and a run block moves forward, and a pass block kind of comes up and sometimes kicks steps back, then could you watch the game 
and say, oh, gosh, that guard, right, just came straight forward. It's probably a run play. So you start to see the game within the game and you take some of those basic things that they say when they're like announcers, when they're like, oh, look, the team is effectively using the run to set up the pass. (laughs) And most people just go, oh, yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Well, what does that mean? Well, usually that means they're trying to set up the linebackers for the old okie doke, right? Could be play action pass or something. They've been running. They've been running. They've been running. Then your your boy J-Mo fakes a handoff and everybody starts coming downhill and they pop a pass right over the linebackers and it's wide open in the middle of the field. That's called using the run to set up the linebacker to get yelled at in film. <laughs> But it, it's, it's those things so that you start to get fluid with the things that fill in the blanks so that whether you go to watch it now and you hear that on TV and you're like, I know what he's talking about. Yeah. Or your child play and you never got to play football, right? Because a lot of women didn't. And now when your son says, you know, I want to play a receiver and I'm supposed to catch 100 balls a day. It doesn't have to be dad because, oh, by the way, we taught you the right way to throw a football. So you're not afraid because you're going to go out in the backyard and look crazy. No, you know the steps to actually throw the football. And as your son goes from peewee to hopefully pro, maybe you've been throwing passes with him every day and and you got quite an arm in the process. So that's one of them. The other one is flag football camps for girls here, especially in Florida. And we have girls that are balling out like these girls are cold and I am sorry, but every, every guy I know who played in the NFL seems to have a football camp and yet very few of them that I know of are dedicated just to girls. So I partnered with um, the NFL alumni national to be able to do a flag football tour um, and do uh, at least 12 cities. Um, to bring flag football camps to girls where they'll get to learn from some of the great women in the game um, and then also the guys that they got to see play on Sundays so that the girls know that them playing is just as important as the boys and they deserve the opportunity to be the best, even if being the best doesn't mean that you want to go play in the NFL. Um, And then the last one is called Camp on the Corner. And it's... um. It's something I came up with when I was in Chicago and I met this amazing woman. Her name is Tamar and she founded um, Mask, which is Mothers Against Senseless Killings. And they camp out in areas of high violence because as, as Tamar would say, nobody wants to kill somebody in front of a mom. And they made their presence known. And I was, I was so taken by just like the bravery and the boldness and the, the beautiful simplicity. Mm-hmm. of just camping out and having a presence. I was like, well, I mean, I can't camp out any day. I don't, I don't even live here, but like <laughs> I could do a camp on the corner. Cause you know, you can't, you can't catch a football and hold a gun at the same time. And that was the simple thing is using sports as an alternative to violence. And I stand by that philosophy, even though one kid said, I bet OBJ could. And I was like, dude, you can't, your hands are too small. Get back at me in a few years, but we can do this anyway, <laughs> right? Like, and, and, the, and the truth is that, um, unfortunately for a lot of these kids, it's like, it, it's not necessarily that they're homicidal, they're suicidal. 
Yeah. Right. They have, if, if you have nothing to live for, then you really have nothing to lose. And so why not show them that they're worth it and that they're important. And so I went in the South side of Chicago and, you know, the first time and, and the second time just kind of went out there with some of my people and some footballs and, um, got the kids active. But, uh, now the next evolution is I partnered with Samaritan's feet, which is an international charity, uh, presence in seven countries whose founder, uh, Manny had his life changed because somebody gave him a pair of shoes when he was a kid in Africa. He won a, a basketball contest. And so here was this little street kid who was selling water. Um, and they didn't even want to let him play. And then he got in this contest and he won a pair of shoes and he was the first one in his whole village to have a pair of shoes. And that pair of shoes propelled him to fall in love with basketball and eventually get a basketball scholarship over in the States um, and become a very successful person um, in business. And then when he went back to Africa for a funeral, he saw the same little kids that were like him. And he changed his whole world to be able to uh, provide shoes. And so our goal in combining Samaritan's feet and, um, and camp on the corner is that, you know, what they do is provide the shoes and then, and then we give them an application, right. A way to use it. And, um, and that's not just football. It's, it's any sport. Um, but I want athletes who I know who have big hearts and, and don't always know how to do it and to give back. And, you know, a lot of the times they've been so warned or, or, they're so worn down, I guess would even be a better play way to put it because everybody has their hand out. Um, the goal is simple with this to get some of the guys I know who are, you know, great men and just let them come out and be a hero for the day. Yeah. Uh, I don't want, I don't want your money. I want none of it. I want you to come out and just be with these kids, go throw a football with them, but show them that, that their value, even, even in this neighborhood, and oh, by the way, then you just have to challenge one of your buddies to do it in his city as well. So that hopefully we get that, that grassroots spread the goodness um, kind of philosophy to, to help elevate kids past where they think is possible. I see a good viral social media campaign coming yeah, on. <laughs> that's what I want. And, and I know so many of the guys who would say, oh, wow, that's so cool. Like you do so much cool stuff, Jen. Like, how do you do that? And, and to just be able to say, listen, I don't want anything from you, but your heart. And, and I want you to go out and play with those kids for a little bit. Can you do that? And can you make one of your buddies do that too? Yeah. Um, and, and knowing the guys that I do um, and, and the hearts that they have, I think it's uh, a pretty simple but powerful thing. All right. I think that it's a great program and, and you are involved in so many great things that, you know, I, I think the guys look up to you a lot and, you know, work down to you. Um, yeah, they look, they, look, <laughs> they look down to make eye contact. Yeah. Um, and sometimes they look right past me when I'm standing right in front of them because they don't normally have to look down to 5'2 level. Yeah. But when they find me, yeah. like happened today, they're generally really excited. Right. I mean, you can speak to that. You've yeah. seen it. Yeah, it was really cute today. Um, so one of the things that's cool about your career is that you played for a men's team. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so in um, 2014, I played a season with the Texas Revolution, which was something that I was 
very outspoken about my entire career and said I would never, ever do because I was not crazy. Um, <laughs> people always asked me. I'd been playing football for so long and they were like, you're so good at this. What are you trying to do playing the NFL? And I would literally tell them, I'm like, I am five foot two, 130 pounds. I do not want to play football against men. I am not crazy. But apparently God has a great sense of humor. <laughs> and um, I went to this meeting with the Texas Revolution and it was right after I had won my second gold medal. And we got back and we were playing in a championship game um, against Chicago. And we lost. And right before we lost, right before we played the game, our owner told us that our team was folding. So kind of wonder what motivation you had to win at that point. But why would you tell your team that right before the game? That's a really great question that I have no answer for. But um feeling a little lost. We didn't really know what we were gonna do. Um we ended up, you know, we're all a little bit vagabonds and I get this call from the Texas Revolution and they want to meet with me and I have no idea why. And um, I agreed to take the meeting and in it, uh, the owner asked me if I would go through a day of training camp with the guys. And I was like, oh, you mean like get you some pub, like smile for the cameras and, you know, do some drills. And he was like, yeah, it'd be awesome. And I was like, no. <laughs> I'm like, that's really insulting to me having just won my second gold medal. And if I was any one of your guys on your team, I would absolutely hate it. If you want to do anything with me and your football team, I either do everything they do step for step, hit for hit, or I do nothing. And all of a sudden I thought, I might have just gotten myself killed. <laughs> and uh, I knew it was going to happen in that moment, though. I, it, it was one of those moments where, you know, I, I really do believe in it, that we can get a sense of, of the things that change the course of our life. We know those big moments. And in that one, that was one of them. And it was the same way I had felt when I made my first football team. The hair on the back of my neck stood up. I mean, I almost got chills. Like I pictured it happening in my mind. And I wouldn't have had it any other way. You know, um, it was something that wasn't supposed to happen. And for every every reason in the world i was exactly the wrong person to do it <laughs> i was 37 years old five foot two 130 pounds maybe and oh by the way he said the only way we can take you is if you play running back which means you want me to do exactly opposite what i've been good at my whole career set up to get me killed and what got me through was number one I had some great teammates. Um, those guys really took me. They looked out for me. But number two, I was willing to step on that field and take those hits for every single one of the women who I had fought with, fought against, fought for my whole career. I knew that it was an opportunity to break through and it was those women that motivated me and I I came to terms with the fact that if that was my destiny to die out on the football field, I would do it. I'm sorry for laughing. Although it's a, I mean, that could be a real possibility with oh, your yeah. size. All of my guys yeah. called me their million dollar baby. 
Like it was a very real thing. And I was very much a target. And oh, by the way, what's the, oh, I don't know. I don't know if you know the answer and I don't want to set you up. Probably the last play that you would put any running back on at five foot two, 130 pounds, male or female, would be a dive up the middle. <laughs> Pretty much suicide. And um, I was put on a dive up the middle three times in a row. When I talked to my buddy Sterling Sharp uh, after the game, because he watched, he's always supported me. And he has this way of cutting straight to the heart of things, which is why I used to love him as an analyst. He said, baby girl, you knew you were going to get killed, didn't you? Yeah. So what was your plan? (laughs) Take the hand off. Secure the football. And when I got hit, get right back up like they didn't even touch me. And he said, well, you did that. (laughs) And before that, he had said the other thing that only, I think that only Sterling would say was, now I got to ask you, in the huddle, was the play call Gen die left? (laughs) Gen die right? Gen die left? And I said, Pretty much. Oh. But it, it was. I mean, it's not a good play call. No. It's not a good situation. And oh, by the way, every dude on defense had one mandate. The girl doesn't score. Right. I would have used me as a decoy all day long. I'm a little fast thing. I would have had me running drag routes and this, that, and the other. I might have run me to the corner. I'd have probably never given me the ball. Maybe after about 365 plays. When those guys were like, oh, she's never going to get the ball anyway. Then do a little something, something. But you put the girl in the game and put the ball in her hands on a dive up the middle. Come on now. (laughs) But something kind of magical happened. When I got hit, I got back up so fast. (laughs) It was what I did my whole career. Remember, I never stayed on the ground. So it was. It was second nature. I just pop right back up. And the place was going so crazy. Like the crowd is going wild. And I don't think I was maybe just not used to having that many people cheering. Because in my mind, I thought the guys on the other team were talking smack. (laughs) And it kind of made me mad. I was like, dude, are you really like talking smack for the fact that you just tackled a girl? And I was alive. So what do you have to talk about? Right? Like I got back up and I just like, I kind of got in their faces and I was like, is that all you got? Well, (laughs) my guys were so, so proud. Right. And the guys on the other team, I didn't really realize the implications. Right. Um, But one of the guys, Cedric is such a good dude. He came up after the game and he was like, he was one of the guys. And he was like, oh my gosh, I don't even know what to do. And he gave me this big hug and he became like my biggest advocate. He was like, man, I hit so hard. And he was like, <laughs> and he was like, then, and he messaged me later. He's like, man, I have people in my family. Like, why'd you do that girl like that? Why'd you hit her so hard? And he was like, 
yo, she's an athlete. She, she got right back up, right? And so I knew him because he was vocal about it that day. Well, I ended up going from playing on the team in that year to then getting my, next, my first coaching opportunity with the same team the next year. And it was Wendell Davis, who, um, former Dallas Cowboy player, who saw how the guys related to me. He saw them react to me. He was like, oh, my gosh, you have to coach my football team. And so I told him, absolutely not. I don't want to coach <laughs> football. And he told me, not a lot of guys are going to give you this opportunity. You're taking this job. And I said no. And I hung up on him. So he proceeded to call me back the next day and tell me about myself. And he said, do you remember how I told you that not a lot of guys were going to give you this opportunity and you were taking this job? And I said, yeah. And he said, good. I took it for you. (laughs) You're coaching for me. And by the way, you can't quit. Otherwise, the narrative will be there was a girl once and she quit. (laughs) Oh, man. Those sneaky right here. Right. Those sneaky allies. Right. (laughs) But so then here I am, like, I, I never wanted to coach, but I never even thought it was possible, right? Like, I, I haven't coached before, and you're going to drop kick me right into men's professional football. This is potentially really bad. And I was a teammate. Now I'm a coach. Thankfully, the guys on defense were all used to the fact that, you know, I was on practice squad for most of the season, and during games, I would get really annoyed with defensive stuff, because it's what I see anyway. So I'd be like, hey, this is what they're doing to you. Blah, 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 blah. Fix this next time. And they'd be like, all right. You know, and, and so I was kind of like their little coach on the sidelines. So it wasn't really a hard transition. Um, but I, I still had that anxiety on the first day of what was going to be like coaching. And um, so one of the guys comes up to me at the end of practice and he basically told me I played for the North North Texas Crunch last year. He was like, okay. And he was like, yeah, I was one of the guys who hit you. <laughs> Essentially. And I was like, all right, well, good hit, dude. And he, he was, was like, do it harder next time. <laughs> right. And I was like, good hit. And he was like, well, that's not what I wanted to tell you. And I was like, all right, so what do you want to tell me? And he goes, man, coach, that, that, was, that was a kill shot. Right. I mean, that was I don't I don't know if I ever hit anybody that hard before. And I was like, all right. And he was like, I'm on the ground. And I'm like, oh, no, I might have killed her. And I'm looking around on the ground. And you're not there. <laughs> He's like, you were already back on your feet. And then you said it. And now I knew what he was about to say. (laughs) And I was like, yeah. And he goes, you said, is that all you got? And I thought to myself, I don't know. (laughs) Is that all I got? He said, Coach Jen, you made me question my manhood. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So uh, he had made sure to let all of the guys know. Before I had uh, coached that I was the real thing. <laughs> That's awesome. And so they were all very attentive and very good that first day. <laughs> and I had no idea why. And then I found out why. <laughs> so thankfully, I have 
uh, been blessed enough to have a lot of unexpected allies yeah. along the way is the best way I could put it. I mean, can you imagine your what if thinking mm-hmm. had you not taken that job, you know? Yeah. And, and that's why, thing. you know, and that's why I go back to that is is that it is that way for all of us. Every single person yeah. who has ever done anything great in this world has definitely thought, I don't know if I can pull this off. <laughs> and we've all had moments, too, that we didn't take that risk. Sure. You know, there have been moments where I didn't. And I try to not focus on those because thankfully I've taken enough big risks in my life, at, at least until this point. But, um, you know, it, it's important to be willing to bet on yourself sure. is what I like to say. I, I don't gamble. I bet on me. And, and there's nobody else that I really know that I would bet on before that. Because the one thing that anybody would tell you who was a teammate of mine, and this is, I think, the best compliment that you could have or, or something that I would hope anybody who played with me would say is that I would sell out my body for anybody on my team. If there was a block and I could get there, I was going to make it. If you needed that one more block or one more tackle or it was possible to get somebody on the one-inch line, I would be there and I wouldn't, I wouldn't stop anything short. And, um, and that to me is why it wasn't anything that was necessarily at the outset there. Right. I was wrong in all of those ways. You're, you know, you're too small. You're too this. You shouldn't, couldn't, and wouldn't do any of these things. And the one thing I couldn't, shouldn't, and didn't do was listen. Just the fight. My coach in arena said when I played on the men's team, he told me, Welter, if I could take the heart out of your chest and put it into every single one of these guys on this team, we would be undefeated. Because he couldn't even believe it. Even when he brought me on that team, he said, I don't think you're going to make it. I said, I don't know either. But I knew to the core of my being, that they were going to have to cut me or kill me because (laughs) there was no way I was quitting and creating that narrative of there was a girl once and she quit because I took that responsibility onto myself that I was going to be not only the first, but definitely not the last. And that's the most important thing you can ever do when you're, you're the first at something. Right. Is that you have to see the bigger picture and you have to realize that you, you know what? Sometimes you may be the blocker and not even the one who scores the touchdown. Right. There are now women who have coached for longer in the NFL. And that's a hard position sometimes to look at. But I think of it as I was the lead blocker and I'm okay with that. Right. That's a, that's a pretty good job to be in. Fullback may not always uh, get the glory, but, you know, it doesn't work without him. It sure doesn't work without the whole line. Yeah, somebody sure. has to take those hits. Somebody has to be willing to open up the holes. And somebody has to be willing to sacrifice for something bigger than themselves. How did you get your position with the Cardinals? 
I called Bruce Arians on behalf of myself as if I wasn't myself. <laughs> Please explain. When somebody asked, um, well, see, what happened is Sarah Thomas was announced as the first full-time female ref in NFL history. And uh, somebody asked Bruce Arians in a press conference if he could ever see a female coaching in the NFL. And the beauty of Bruce Arians is that he is Bruce Arians to the core. Mm-hmm. And he will tell you the truth, even if it is a truth that you may not want to hear. And he simply answered, the second a woman proves she can make guys better in the NFL, she'll be hired. So somebody asked him the question and he answered it. Yep. Woman can make somebody better, she'll be hired. So I talked about it uh, with my head coach at practice. And he said, well, we should call Bruce. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to pick up the phone and <laughs> call the head coach in the NFL. Sure, no problem. Yeah, no big deal. And uh, he said, can you give me his number? And I thought, dude, you played in the NFL. Can't you get his number? <laughs> but, you know, arena football practice is really early in the morning. You know, we have to coach them and then give them enough time to go to their other jobs. So. It just so happened that I had way too much time on my hand that day. <laughs> and I started thinking about it, and I was like, I wonder if I can get his number. So I went on the Arizona Cardinals website, and I made myself sound really good. <laughs> I was assistant to head coach Devin Wyman, who, by the way, who there's so much turnover in arena football that Wendell, who had brought me in, was not even there anymore. Now his defensive coordinator was the head coach, and thankfully, Devin liked me enough to keep me, but I was calling on behalf of head coach Devin Wyman, who was a former New England Patriot, and <laughs> wanted to speak to Coach Arians because he had heard in his press conference that Coach Arians said that a female could coach in the NFL as soon as she could make the guys better, and that he was quite certain that Coach Arians was not, not sure, or he was unaware that there was actually already a female coaching in men's professional football, though granted it was not the NFL. (laughs) And so I talked my way all the way to Bruce's assistant, Wes, who was like, oh my gosh, BA would definitely want to take this call. Like, you're definitely going to have to, like, give me Coach Wyman's number and um, I'll have BA call him. He's like, but, you know, just be aware it's right before the draft, so we're a little busy. So it might be a couple weeks. Completely thought I had gotten blown off, but was really proud of myself for calling like the Cardinals. I was like, oh my gosh, I called the Cardinals, right? Like, <laughs> I'd barely even been to Arizona, but I'm calling the Arizona Cardinals. And um, a few weeks later, I walked into practice and um, Devin was elated. So you never guess who I talked to yesterday. And I said, Coach, I have no idea. I'm sleepy. It's 5 30 in the morning. I'm not that smart. <laughs> and he said, Bruce Arians, and he said, tell me about this girl. And um, so from there, BA ended up inviting me out to OTAs, and, you know, we met and um, just hit it off. And he basically told me that he was not sure he could make it happen. He had to get all the right yeses, but he wanted me to trust him. And and to know that it was in his heart to 
And so there was never any other conversations with anyone else. Um, no other teams, no, no outside push or mandates or anything complicated. It was a connection and between me and him. And, um, it was funny because I, I didn't really know how to follow up from that. And I didn't want to bug him because, you know, you're like the head coach in the NFL. And I did have his cell phone number, but I was too scared to call it. <laughs> and I remembered he told me to let him know how my season was going. And um, I called him right before we were going to the championship game. And he was, was like, oh, coach, you know, I'm out on the golf course. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to disturb you. And he was like, yeah, no worries. He's like, you know, I just want to let you know, um, that's really great that you're going to play in the championship. I know you got a lot of work to do. He's like, so, you know, go get that, go get that ship, go get that W. And by the way, uh, you'll be coming with us for preseason and training camp. So, you know, just give me a call after you win the ship and uh, we'll go over details. And he's like, I'll talk to you later. And I was like, wait, what <laughs> was that like a drive by smack in the face of good news? Cause I was like, <laughs> You know, I know my jaw dropped to the floor and I could physically feel it there because I was like, that just happened. And I don't even know what to say. And I couldn't really talk to anybody because I knew that was big news and it couldn't get out anywhere. Um, I wouldn't even let um, my players or the coaches or anybody talk about it. Um, and, and nobody outside that bubble knew. Um, and that's why no one knew until everyone knew yeah. is because I threatened people. Um, <laughs> but it, it was just, it, it was so important to me that it was done right. Um, because yet again, at, at every marker, I knew it, it had to be perfect from start to finish because I didn't want there to be any element to any narrative that could have closed the door for all of the other women who might want to coach in the future. So. How did you handle that first press conference? Um, it was kind of scary because um, I didn't really know what to expect. Um, and I had had no, no real training. And so I remember it was so weird to me. Like, they're like, Oh, you're such a trailblazer. And I was like, Oh, I don't, I don't like that. That I'm not comfortable with that. <laughs> and I, I remember, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I was like, um, if, you know, such and such means that, you know, I'm a trailblazer and Bruce was just like, uh, she's a trailblazer. <laughs> like, we're just going to cut right through this. Cause I, I couldn't, I, I I couldn't see it that way. But I remember one of the most important um, elements, and, and there were a few, you know, was just to be really real and to share the story because I wanted people to understand that, you know, there were a lot of women um, fighting that good fight. And that also the most important element to get across was It was so many people saying like, oh, you're living the dream. You're coaching in the NFL. And, and I would have to correct them. No, I'm not living the dream because 
This is not a dream I was ever permitted to have. But the beauty of this is that now it's a dream that every other little girl could have because as much as I might have been this great, amazing player and done all these amazing things, there was not one moment prior to being in the NFL or, or having that conversation you know, with Bruce or beyond that it ever once crossed my mind. Not once. Not one glimmer of a dream or a hope or a, or a whisper of a possibility that I could ever be a coach in the NFL because there was nobody I could look at and say, I want to be her when I grow up. And to me, that's what was really special. And I, and I, I see that clip and I just remember I, I didn't want to cry. <laughs> like I felt it. It was right there. And I was like, the beauty of it is that other people could see it because that's what I was seeing through my eyes at that moment. And that's why, that's why I brought tears to my eyes is it never once crossed my mind as a possibility. And yet somebody else might see me and it could spark a dream. And, uh, and that was really powerful. And, and I was proud of the way that press conference went because I think I said a lot of things that were important and that people grabbed onto. Um, and that, you know, I really just was myself. You know, I remember they handed me this giant helmet. <laughs> it was giant. I mean, I was a football player and it was giant. And they wanted me to like, hold it and take pictures and it was so big and so awkward i didn't know what to do and i felt uncomfortable and i was like can i just put it on i'm a football player that's what i do and so here was this giant football helmet that made me look like a bobblehead (laughs) jen walter bobblehead somebody make it please oh please do that'd be funny um it'd have to be a short bobblehead though it's fine the head might bobble to the ground (laughs) i mean they're 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 small anyway right right but the head might bobble all the way to hit the ground like be like headbanger <laughs> um but it it's funny because that shot ended up being like on all the videos and then one of the ones that was kind of like this this little kid putting a helmet on for the first time and that's that's how i felt and and that's how i coached the whole time too is that it should be fun and that's why one of my favorite things that somebody else pointed out to me um was a journalist had read all of the articles and and stuff where players had been talked to and they said, you know what kept coming up over and over like, no, I couldn't really read that stuff. I was too busy. They said that you were a breath of fresh air. And, uh, you know, when we get so serious and so professional and so high dollar, um, it's, it's tempting to think that that's all there is or that that's what's important or that that's where winning comes from. But it doesn't have to. Today, we saw an example firsthand of how being a coach and being a female is something that's already in little girls' minds as being a possibility. You met my uh, friend's nieces, and when one of them was told that you were the first female coach in the NFL, she was like, wait, like no other had been? There hadn't Mm -hmm. been one before her? What? 
That doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's already started to change in little girls' minds. So, you know, you've done so much and you know that, but I feel like you need to hear it too, because it, it, for me, for anyone else who works in sports, those are the moments that we hold on to. And I'm going to make sure to link to um, the press conference and a picture of you in the helmet looking like a bobblehead. Cause I Pretty like awesome because I had the same, there's the same picture of me when I was a little kid. <laughs> Basically, I mean, putting it up, putting you, the football helmet. Do you helmet. have that at home? Do your parents have that at home, you think? One of my cousins gave it to me and I, I didn't even remember it. He was like, yeah, I remember I saw Will and Uncle and he was like, I should have known you. Like, he was crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, your, uh, your degree, your PhD in sports psychology has really been helpful for you, obviously, on the field, off the field. Um, you told a really interesting story about how the guys tend to react to that. Uh, can you relay it? Um, we were talking about Ricky Williams earlier and, and, uh, how he responded when he found out. Oh yeah. I love, Ricky is, um, it's just an amazing, really deep guy. He thinks about the game in um, in a very impressive way. And I met him at a charity game I was playing on with the, uh, wounded warriors amputee football team, which is, uh, cause that's really close to my heart since my dad is a Vietnam veteran and and the stories that shaped me as a little kid were him telling me that his job in the army was to pull his friends out of burning tanks and he was still is where I learned what bravery was seeing danger and doing it anyway and you just do the right thing because it's the right thing and you just do it and you don't think about it and um so to be able to play with those guys every time is like it's an honor to me, and to have those guys get to play football against you know some of their their football heroes is is pretty uh, legendary. And I remember, and this was long before the NFL stuff, right? And long before really anybody knew who I was. And I'm playing in this game and kind of epic. It's Vince Young and uh, you know Shotgun and Ricky Williams in the backfield lined up to block for him and I come off the edge and Ricky's just playing around and he he drops down like he's gonna cut me and I was like oh you're gonna cut me and he just looked at me like she knows what a cut is right it was kind of <laughs> like this wait she knew what I was doing and um and we just kind of had this great back and forth you know I told him I was a football ninja and I was gonna be a nightmare all day and and we just kind of hit it off and we were joking and after the game he came up to me and he was like so you really know football and, and that's cool and I, but um, since you're a doctor, like sports psychology, we got to talk. I want to know everything. And it was just his inquisitive mind that makes him so special. And, and he's been a, a good friend ever since. And we've had some, you know, some really amazing talks. Ricky's somebody who definitely sees the game differently. And, you know, the last time I talked, I saw him. He was like, I'm going to coach in China. I'm going to come to China. It would be so epic if we went to China, <laughs> you know? And I was like, oh, you're so awesome. You know? And he was just like, would you come? Would you do that? And I was like, well, yeah, Ricky Williams, I'll go coach football <laughs> with you. Right? Like that's, that's an easy yes. Some things are a hard yes. That's an easy yes. Right. Ricky Williams, football. I'm on your team. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, it, Ricky Williams. I have to tackle you. I'm on the other team. That's that's a hard one. But 
Will I go coach with you? Yes, Ricky Williams, I will go <laughs> coach with you. Um, why have you not um, uh, gone down the path of being a sports psychologist? Um, I mean, I do. I, I actually do consult all the time. There's a lot of a lot of guys that know that we handle some of those issues on a regular basis, and it's nobody's business. That's um, awesome, you know. And I've I've worked with kids and coaches and families since gosh since i i had my master's degree in in sports psychology and um it, it's more one of those things where it, it's nobody's business right like if, if i'm working with somebody unless unless say i was on the team sidelines you wouldn't know about it right right and um i remember and i kind of learned that from this um this girl she was a horseback rider and she was a, a young phenom and her name's Maddie and Maddie was having trouble because she was younger than everybody. And, and there was some stuff with the coaches and so I worked with her for a while and her mom was like, you know, Jen, I really want to help you build your business. I want to be able to tell other people. And she was like, I talked to Maddie about it and Maddie said, no, you, you can't, Nobody else can have my secret weapon. <laughs> and she said, I, I don't know what to do. I want to be able to help you. And I said, you can't. You can't take that away from her. It needs to be just her secret weapon, and I'm good with that. And it was like, you know, it, it might be a, a short period of time or, you know, a longer one. Um, I don't remember how long I worked with Maddie, but it was a really cool feeling when, um, her mom messaged me maybe about a year ago and sent me um, like an article saying that Maddie had signed a uh, full scholarship to go to CCU, you know, oh, on their horseback riding team. So it, it happens all the time. Um, and I do also consult in businesses on understanding psychology of teamwork and, and all of those dynamics. Um, it's just, it's more on a, a personal basis of can you help me with this and and what is it and um just having the time to absorb enough to be able to truly help because my approach is different um you know i mean football is easy because i know football right but i work with when i work with a business or um a professional i've worked with actors and actresses you know dealing with different things and um, my approach is you have to bring me into your world. You have to allow me to be able to walk a mile in your shoes or play a game in your cleats. Because if I know it and I see you and you'll truly let me understand you, I can always help you. But with athletes particularly, um, it's a tough dynamic because we don't like outsiders, number one. And number two, it's been ingrained in us since the very first time we played a competitive sport that success comes by never admitting fear and never admitting weakness. So the trust to become that person that you can not be perfect with is not something that's fact. And if you're trying to just put a Band-Aid on it, I'm not your person. 
It may be fast, but I'm not going to push you that way. It may be that we've known each other for years and I'm the only one you can talk to. And you know what? Uh, that's what I'm going to do. You know, it's like even my players know and whether, you know, they were clients or not clients, like that's not, it's the same mentality. You know, they weren't. But once, once you're my guy, you're always my guy. You can call me anytime. And, and if I can help you in football or in life, I'm going to help you. And that's not going to stop just because, you know, I'm not with a team anymore or you are. Um, it, you know, that's why I say it doesn't matter if I'm here. I'm always here for you. So um, I do that all the time and I love it. Um, but it's kind of like that, that private element of life like as opposed said, to yeah. the public, right? Like I can help a lot of people when I go and speak to thousands of people. You know, like that's fun to me. Like that's that's cool. And and you know, I just spoke at MGM Grand. Right? Like how ridiculous is that? I used to play for a dollar game and now I'm speaking at MGM Grand. And so you can elevate this this great massive amount of people um at one time. But the intimate, the one on one um is is really what I love, but it takes time to be absorbed in that dynamic. Um I think Eventually, I mean, I would love to do sports psychology for a team. I think it would be ideal. I think it's necessary. Some teams have it. Some don't. Um, but it's the ultimate insider, right? It's the ultimate insider thing. And though some teams have it, I would argue that it could be done a little bit better because I've been on all sides of the equation. Sure. Right. And the guys, you know, and I, I think, you know, society generally is still, uh, take it a step even, you know, beyond sport-specific psychology. They talk about mental health issues. Mm-hmm. You know, as a society, people are still not open about it, and then you put it in this big, tough game, mm-hmm. you know, and we we saw a few years back with Brandon Marshall and coming out with um, his mental illness and the you know, great things he did. I'm so proud of Brandon Marshall for that. That is not easy. That is one of the hardest things you could do as an athlete to be willing to admit your weakness to promote the strength in others. That's what true strength is. We, um, we're starting to see more celebrities slowly, more athletes. What do you hope to see going forward with the acceptance of the, you know, and people getting actual help for these mental health issues? Well, first of all, it's all about how you frame things in our society, right? It's all about how you frame the conversation, okay? First of all, realizing that, you know, a chemical imbalance in your brain is not something you did right or wrong, okay? So it's not feeling blame or shame around it. It's like, hey, you know, your car is low on oil. What are you going to do? Keep driving it until you blow the engine? Nah, probably not. You're just going to put some oil in it. Unless you're me when I was 20. Yeah, but that's but that's the education, right? <laughs> right. Like right. we learn that the hard way sometimes and it's like, but the difference is that you don't feel like you were a terrible human being if you had to put oil in your car. Right. Right. But for some reason, like, 
you're a terrible human being if you need medication. And that's the conversation that needs to happen is this is really not a big deal. It's about getting you to function optimally and that you didn't do something wrong to need this. We're just trying to help you feel a little bit righter. And when people start talking about it, that's when you can start to say, oh, okay. And oh, by the way, really, there's medical privacy laws. So even if I don't feel comfortable or somebody doesn't feel comfortable being like, you know, as out and open as maybe a Brandon Marshall was, then just go take care of, right? Like, right. It, but the mentality used to be re- regarding mental illness is that you just don't talk about it. Right. I was like, Fight Club. Don't talk about Fight Club. There's no Fight Club. First rule, Fight Club. Don't talk about Fight Club. We, I mean, when my mom went manic the first time when I was 14, I was up until maybe even like five years ago. Like I didn't like talking about the fact that she, because I was afraid people would think I was crazy. And then now I'm very open about like the halo effect. Crazy. Right. It's like, you're going to get infected. Right. And now I'm very open about my struggles with depression and anxiety since I was a kid. You know, I was first diagnosed with depression when I was 13. Right. Which no kid should have to go through. And you know what? But better to to get it and to understand it, because the truth is that it's all manageable. Right. Right. It's not a it's not a a life ending scenario. It's not a oh, I'm sorry. I must tell you that you have checked into the ER and your daughter has been shot. Right. Right. Which could be terminal. No, it's a it's a chemical firing process. It's something is just a little bit off. And hey, if you get this, it's going to be a little less off. And you know what? It may take us a little while to dial it in. And you know what? Some days are going to be a little better than others, but it's not a death sentence. And I think that that's where people have to get over it is to realize that there are real solutions. Like there really is light at the end of the tunnel. It's not a train. Like you're fine. You will be fine. Like you feel like something is wrong in your head because sometimes you literally will feel that it's not a tumor and you know what the truth is it could be right but you have to be willing to get something checked out if it's wrong right it's not it's not normal to feel bad every day or to not be able to have impulse control or to you know feel like you need to sleep 75 hours out of 76 or to not want to open your eyes, right? Like those are not normal. But if nobody tells you what normal is or that you deserve to be happy or that you have the right as a human to feel good and feel strong and to not be in pain or whatever those things are, then you don't know any better, right? You don't know that the normal for most people is not the normal in your head and also that you're not alone because the scariest place in the world is to feel like you're the only one right to feel like you're the only one who has ever had that fear thought that thought experienced that anxiety had a moment of doubt had a moment of weakness you know eaten more cookies than you should you know whatever it is like when you feel like you're the only one you feel like you're this terrible human being then you shame cycle right but the truth is 
that none of these problems are brand new. <laughs> right? Like none of them are brand new. Someone else has experienced this before you. Maybe not exactly as you have. Right. Right. But the truth is that there are answers, but you can't find answers if you don't even have permission to ask the question. And that's what I would like to see. And whether it's, you know, just understanding that, you know, I, I explained psychology and saying there is no black and white. It is all a spectrum. It is all some shade of gray. And whether you quote unquote qualify as having a mental illness or not, you're still somewhere on the same spectrum. So get out of your own head, get out of your own way and, and get to where you're supposed to be. And, and don't just suffer in silence. Thank you for that. That's, you know, I am trying to make sure that in these conversations, we do talk about some of these hard things that, you know, life is not easy. It's <laughs> not all like, you know, rainbows and puppies. Sure. Um, you have a book coming out. I do. So tell us about it. Um, I'm really excited. Uh, it's called Play Big. It's lessons in living limitless from the first woman to coach in the NFL, which is a real mouthful. And <laughs> I did not actually come up with the second part. It was just play big in my mind. Um, the rest, sometimes I'm afraid I'm going to get the words wrong. So don't be mad. Um, but play big to me encompasses a lot of things, right? It is physically, you don't have to be big to play big and have a big impact. Obviously for me, that was, kind of inevitable, right? But it's also that mentality of, you know, playing for something bigger than yourself, mm -hmm. which was a a big driving factor for me. You know, whether it was the women in the game who had fought for me and with me and, you know, inspire me and and all of those things and and being willing to, you know, literally get tackled by men um to create opportunities for them. And it's also, it taps into the effect that you can have, not by just what you do, but by the ripple effects and, and the cause and effect that it has. And so what you see is, is how that mentality played out in, in my life, in very real situations. You know, some of the stories that we told today, um, other ones that are not there, but then also some real takeaways that hopefully you know, help you say like, okay, this was this situation and this is how I could apply it to my life. And I've had some people say, oh my gosh, is it hardcore football X's and O's? No. It's not just a football story. It's a life story that played out on the football field for me and how some of those lessons have shaped me and, and how I play in the game of life, not in, not in football. So I think it's really exciting. Um, I'm also one of the things that I make sure to tell people is they're like, oh, yeah, you have a book. Of course you do. And I'm like, no, actually, it's not an of course you do. <laughs> it was actually a really hard book to get published because everybody said, well, women in football doesn't sell. And I would have to check them and say, well, how many times have you had? Have you tried to sell it? Because, oh, I'm pretty sure I was the first. Right. So maybe it hasn't sold but it will sell right uh so now i'm kind of on a mission to make it a bestseller because i know it's a, it's an easy 
read in a lot of ways, but it's something that should um, lift you up and challenge yourself. And, um, uh, you know, and then some of the behind the scene, the scene stuff, which is just fun and funny and things that you wouldn't think about, you know, right. like the wardrobe surrounding the first oh female to coach in the NFL. <laughs> and maybe the fact that they, they didn't even tell me what kind of pants they were. I mean, you know, things like that, that make it very human. So. Yeah. I'm not going to disclose here, but you told me some of the stories uh, earlier today. And I mean, anybody who's listening, you should absolutely get the book because if uh, I'm hoping I don't know it all already, I'm guessing I don't, even though we've uh, talked a lot. So I will certainly be reading it, but um, it comes out in October, but people can pre-order now. Yeah, it is on all of the major online you know, outlets already. It's um, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, um, the indie sites. You can also go to Seal Press, um, their website. Look up Jen Welter. It, it's everywhere, which is really kind of cool and scary all at once. <laughs> because if you want to talk, um, you know, getting getting past those those moments of weakness. You know, there's stuff in there that I know a lot of people would never expect um, about me, about my life. And it, you know, for somebody who was taught my whole career that you never admit fear and never admit weakness and maybe you shed no tears. Well, um, that myth, uh, if you had that about me, is over now because uh, some of those things are, are there. And um, it, it'll be really interesting to to see that because my hope is that, you know, like we talked about with Brandon Marshall and like we talked about with Tony Dorsett being willing to admit some of that weakness so that other people can gain strength is, is now what I believe is important um, that I never saw as a player. Well, I think being vulnerable generally can open doors and yep. I'm just glad <laughs> you didn't say that when I was a player, because I would have looked at you like you were crazy. She would have tackled me. Um, you would have caught me too. Um, so, oh, and also one of the other cool things is, um, you know, if you don't want to order online, go into a bookstore yeah, and literally just request that they carry it. Because a lot of the times the bookstores only know what books are going to be really popular it, when somebody goes in and says, I want this book. And this is something that I hope people really want. So, you know, go in and support your your local bookstores, because I think as somebody who used to love to wander and just find covers that enchanted me and stories that I, I wanted to read. um, Or the smell of the pages. Yeah. I mean, definitely be willing to, to go into a bookstore and say, you know, we want this book because I think that that's a really cool element and I don't want it forgotten. That's great. And um, closer to the release, you will likely have some sort of, we're hoping, book tour. So when that comes out, you know, everyone just, you know, keep an eye on Jen. How can people follow you online and just generally? Um, I am Dr. Jen Welter on Facebook, um, at jwelter47 on Twitter, welter47 on Instagram. There is a little theme, you know. 
athletes we like our last name and number it's a pretty good guess <laughs> um linkedin i'm on there as well i do a lot of communicating on linkedin and then my website is jenwelter.com very simple we met on linkedin that's right yeah we did um well thank you so much for being here and i really really look forward to reading the book and i hope that you know everyone listening got something out of this and feel free to reach out to either of us Big thank you to Jen Welter for being on the podcast. I cannot lie. That is kind of a dream of mine was to meet Jen and the fact that she came over. And uh, I mean, I'm in a little surreal life today. Um, Please make sure that you subscribe, rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, RadioInfluence.com. Those are my guys or wherever else you can get your podcast so that you don't miss out. In the meantime, you can follow us on social media at LTPF pod on the Twitter, Instagram, and the Facebook. Um, the website is LTPFpod.com, And I'll have um, some additional information in the show notes on there. And my personal Twitter is at Bobby Sue B O B B I S U E. Next week, I know I said this week it was going to be Denise, but it's actually going to be next week since I had my little visitor here this week. Um, So next week, we are going to release an interview with Denise White at EAG Sports Management, and we have a great discussion there as well. Um, Please keep sending me your comments and feedback. I really look forward to reading them, and thank you all for listening. Mm -hmm.